This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to present the original radio broadcast from 80 years ago during the days of the war. With the occasional more recent radio program about the war included. Today we have the February 20th, 1944 edition of CBS World News Today. It includes analysis and updates on the war from Pearl Harbor, Naples, London, Cairo, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. World News Today. Brought to you by the Admiral Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast direct from important overseas stations, as well as leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's Doug Edwards. Here are the highlights of today's news. American planes have carried out the greatest daylight operation of the war against unannounced targets in Germany. The Allies have turned back repeated German counterattacks at Anzio. Russian forces have moved closer to Peskov, and the Pacific offensive continues. For details, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Pearl Harbor. Webley Edwards reporting. A characteristic of the Japanese is that he does not perform well in the face of the unexpected. I have seen him, in a sudden emergency, do either of two things. Either become sullenly inactive or go all to pieces, as we say. The Japs' plan of defense in the Pacific has been pretty badly bent, if not indeed broken up, by current unexpected attacks of the forces of Admiral Chester Nimitz in the Central Pacific. The Japs seems to be reacting characteristically. His forward forces have gone all to pieces, as we say. His main strength, his fleet, is sullenly inactive. Central Pacific forces swarmed all over him this week. Warships of the Pacific Fleet and land-based planes of the 7th AAF and Fleet Air Wing 2 pummeled him all the way from the eastern Marshall Islands to his great bastion of Truk in the Carolines. They hit the fringes and then hit in between at Kusai and Ponape. Rear Admiral R.K. Turner's forces moved in on any way talk, gave it a tremendous pounding from planes and warships and then Rear Admiral Harry Hill's amphibious forces, with assault troops under Marine Brigadier General T.E. Watson, went in for the kill. By yesterday, it was announced that Engebi Island was captured. 
Now Admiral Halsey announces shelling of Rabaul, New Britain, and Kaviang, New Ireland, by his two fleet destroyer forces. The Central Pacific forces are pouring it on, and the Jap is rocking back on his heels. His hopeful plan of slow withdrawal, backward, inch by inch, he hoped would tire, we hoped he, it would tire the fighting in the distance, has suddenly been rolled back on him by bold, swift advances. His outer defenses have got to have help. And with the powerful air and surface superiority we now hold over his bases in the Central Pacific, as far west as Truk, the only help he can send is his fleet. That fleet has not yet come out. You may be sure if and when it does, the Pacific fleet will welcome the meeting. This is Webley Edwards at Pearl Harbor, returning you to Admiral Radio in New York. More news in just a moment. But first, here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. One of the many combat uses of radio, such as Admiral is now building, was dramatically portrayed during the recent invasion of Roy and Amur Islands in the Kwajalein Atoll. Two Marine Corps officers flying over the atoll broadcast every detail of the bitter fighting between our Marines and the Imperial Japanese Guard. Marine headquarters was kept precisely informed of developments just as they happened, where fighting progressed according to schedule, where reinforcements were needed, where bombing or strafing from the air would be helpful, and when an artillery barrage from guns on nearby islands or from ships should be lifted or lowered. The two officers flew high and low, gleaning every detail of information possible to help in the speedy conquest of these Japanese island bases. They were shot at many times, as testified by their riddled planes, but their cool, concise descriptions of the fighting were invaluable to the final outcome of these battles. Thus, radio continues to play its important part in every invasion. Admiral workers are glad Admiral Corporation is contributing so much to ultimate victory. When victory comes, Admiral's production facilities, expanded to meet wartime needs, will be converted to the building of your new and better Admiral, America's Smart Set. Now, here once again is Doug Edwards. Marshal Tito announced today that Yugoslav partisans attacking the Germans in eastern Bosnia encountered stiff resistance in a battle for Rogatika, 30 miles east of Sarajevo. A large portion of a railroad station 15 miles east of Ljubljana was destroyed. And now for the news from the Italian battlefronts and an interview with one of our airmen who saw quite a bit of fighting before he parachuted to safety, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Naples. John Daly reporting. Under clear skies today, our strategic bombers, foremoded liberators, joined the battle for the NGOB test. This is the second time since the battle began that our strategic heavy bombers have turned tactical and blasted the German concentrations in the NGO area. Last Thursday morning, this is the second day of the enemy offensive, liberators and fortresses dropped tons of bombs on enemy rail concentrations a bare eight miles behind the front line as mediums and fighter bombers attacked the front line. Beside me is Flight Officer George A. Stanley of Nashville, Tennessee, co-pilot of a B-24, which took part in that race. Later, he had a most uncomfortable grandstand seat for the Anzio battle. But let's begin at the beginning. You tell the story, George. Our target was Chicano, a railroad junction at the northern end of Anzio Albano Road. We didn't have much trouble going in and did a good bombing job. Then we turned around and started back and ran into what we call now Black Alley. It's the heaviest back act car I've ever run into. About a minute after we hit it, 
We took three direct hits, one of them in the main gas tanks and the bomb bay. We tried to plug the hole, but there wasn't a thing we could do about it, and the skipper, Lieutenant Thomas A. Scott from Honeywell, South Carolina, ordered a abandoned ship. Could you see much of what was going on down on the ground? Not at first. We were at 20,000 feet when we bombed. But after we got hit, we came down pretty fast so that we could jump without oxygen, and it didn't look very healthy. Everybody got out all right except the engineer. His chute didn't open. But he had a chest pipe and pulled the cover off and pulled the chute out with his hands. Well, where were you about then? Over the enemy lines? No, but that was what was beginning to look We had been heading in from the beach, and I could see a lot of falling down below. I said to Tom, we'd better get going pretty quick. He came at the bomb bay after blowing up the bomb site and said, OK, let's go together. He went out one side of the catwalk, and I went out the other. When I shoot open, we were about 25 yards apart, and it was very quiet. I hurried over to Tom. Seemed silly now, but I said, hello. Did your silk come out all right? He laughed and looked up at it, just said, yeah. I pointed down and said, those are the jail lines over there. Where do you think we're hit? Tom shouted back. God only knows. We looked close and we pulled at our side lines like we had a hole to the rainbow and we were pulling for the side of gold. And where did you land? Just inside our lines. There was machine gun fire and artillery all over the place. We were digging a hole to get into when some parachute boys came out and got us. The ship blew up overhead about that time. We came out of the beach yet on an LFC yesterday. Well, what are you going to do now, George? Tom Scott is off getting another ship for us and we'll be flying again another day or two. It's going to be good to get back and help the boys up at Angio. I never realized what a tough job the infantry boys had before. 24 hours on the ground up there was enough for me. Now back to CBS in New York. American airmen in Britain today made their biggest attack to date on Germany. For available details and for an interview with one of our Thunderbolt pilots, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS London, Charles Shaw reporting. United States Air Force had just completed the greatest aerial daylight operation of the war. A bulletin on the operations received within the hour says heavy bombers of the 8th Air Force attacked major units of the German fighter aircraft industry. They were escorted by American, British, Canadian, and other allied aircraft. Possibly more than 1,500 airplanes were over Germany today, including more than 800 bombers. Prior to today, there were no major American raids on German targets this week. But that doesn't mean that the Germans had a rest. Out went the fleet deadly Thunderbolt Thunder Bombers, fighter planes equipped with bombs to blast enemy planes on the ground to knock them out of the skies. The Thunder Bomber is used most effectively as a dive bomber, actually an invention of the United States, but popularized by the Germans in the early days of the war. Our Thunder Bomber version of the dive bomber was introduced in this theater last December by a group commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Glenn E. Duncan, a 25-year-old resident of Houston, Texas, holder of the DSC, DFC, the Silver Star, and Air Medal. Colonel Duncan, what would you like to tell us mainly about your job? Well, the P-47, or the Thunder Bomber, as we call it, is just another means of raising cane with a hun. The Thunder Bomber was planned primarily as a fighter plane for the protection of bombers, but American ingenuity resulted in the present use of the plane. It was thought that the P-47 should be a high-altitude plane, operating no lower than 20,000 feet. But we soon decided that we didn't have to just patrol the substratosphere. There was skepticism at first as to whether we could hit anything with our bombs. They learned differently since. The Thunder Bomber, as a fighter, is a threat to the enemy in the air. But if Jerry wants to hide, he 
If he won't come up and fight, we blast him out of the ground. Well, I take it your main bombing targets are airfields. Well, not necessarily. Just at the present time. We pick out dispersals, hangars, and other buildings on enemy fields, and we can do pinpoint bombing. Even though the Thunder Bomber is not a formal dive bombing ship, our pilots are good enough to go down and carry out their missions with precision. And I can't say enough for those pilots. I've seen them line up to volunteer for missions, regardless of how dangerous they may be, or whether they may have experiments on new tactics. If they can keep getting the equipment, they'll surely use it to advantage. Well, do you have reason to believe that the enemy dreads your approach? When they see us coming, they're even scared to taxi their planes. The Hun used to think that he was safe from the P-47 if he could get away from high altitude and go down low. But we continue down with him now, even though we're well inside his home territory and catch him at minimum altitude or on the deck. Well, Colonel, what change does it make for pilots to perform dive bombing instead of using their planes as straight fighters? If you give the pilots the idea they're going to tear the hell out of the Hun, they can adjust themselves to any idea. They want to fight. The more weapons they have, the more they'll fight. Well, thank you, Colonel Duncan. And we take you now to CBS Cairo, George Murad reporting. This is the story of half a million Jews in Palestine. Persecuted people, refugees, talented idealistic men and women, a handful of Europeans who tried to build a nation of Jews on stony, unproductive soil. On April 1st, their hopes and heartbreaking labors of 25 years come to a dead stop. By terms of the white paper, Palestine's gates were closed, leaving the Jews a one out of three minority, surrounded by an Arab world. The situation in Palestine is tense. Tonight I arrived in Jerusalem, time bombs exploded in the government immigration office of Haifa, Tel Aviv, and Jerusalem. This week, two British constables were shot and killed by Jewish radicals. The situation is terribly complicated. I can only tell you that the positions of each side leave absolutely no room for compromise. We regret that the broadcast signal from Cairo is not up to standard. And now here in our New York studio to give you the insight on the fighting in Italy is Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. One point at least is becoming increasingly clear as reports come in from the Allied beachhead south of Rome. That point is but the Allied commanders knew what they were doing when they ordered the landing forces to use the precious time gained by surprise to dig in solidly to consolidate a defensive position which could not be broken by German counterattack. That order is paying dividends now. The Allied commanders did not make the mistake of underestimating the enemy. They knew that German resourcefulness and German desperation would produce violent counteraction against this menacing beachhead. They knew that if they sent their troops racing over the countryside in raids against the German communications, those raiding forces would be lost and the gains of surprise wiped out. So they dug in. The results are now beginning to be apparent. The first series of German counterattacks were hurled back. These were apparently by scratch combat groups hastily put together, too weak to gain very much ground. Then the Germans tried again, this time with additional forces brought down from the north. They gained high ground near Aprilia and brought the port of Anzio under long-range bombardment. But they did not wipe out the bridgehead. Now the Germans are trying for a third time, with no less than nine divisions. And once more they appear to have been stopped. They made gains at one point on a narrow front, but don't appear to be able to hold these gains. The tide of battle is turning in favor of the Allies. The weather has broken again just at the crucial moment, so that our air power can operate at full strength. In the south, the Germans cling desperately to the ruins of Casino. 
But new Allied troops are making their appearance there. An advance on the casino front becomes more probable. The Canadian Corps, over on the Allied right, has not yet been seriously engaged, nor has the newly arrived Polish Corps. The beachhead is, however, the pivot upon which the whole plan depends. If it holds, see even more favorable developments in Italy for long. Major Elliott, since we've been on the air, CBS correspondent Winston Burdett has reported from Allied headquarters in North Africa that on Friday morning, a handful of Allied troops were seen fighting its way into the Monte Cassino Monastery. None of them came back to tell the story. Since then, we've not tried to storm the place again, pointing out perhaps the toughest obstacles of all in the casino sector were the Abbey Hill sectors. In Russia, three Red Army columns are converging on Peskov today, the key to the German defense of the southern approaches to the Baltic states. And a German communique says the Russians have launched a new attack between the Pripyat and Beretsino rivers. There's no official word on just how far Red Army spearheads are from Peskov, but frontline reports say the Soviet nutcracker is driving the Germans back toward the Baltic entryway, and the Red Army has already turned Peskov's vital railway yards and supply depots into a sea of flame. This air attack is said to have brought a virtual halt to the enemy attempt to bring reserves and supplies through to Peskov. Soviet planes set fire to at least 15 trains. There seems to be little doubt but that the fighting men overseas want mail, all the mail they can get. For a report on just how the V-mail machines operate, Admiral Radio takes you to the Fleet Post Office here in New York, Bill Slocum, Jr., reporting. Listen to that sound for a second or two, please. Sounds a little like a heart pounding and pushing life blood through a very tired and busy human body. Well, that's precisely what it does. It's V-mail equipment. This piece happens to be in the Navy's fleet post office in New York. But similar pieces of machinery are scattered all over the world. And wherever they are, they're helping tired and busy humans carry on a back-breaking job. If you're a son or daughter in the services... You certainly have been told much more eloquently than I can tell you just what mail means to a fighting man or woman. I have no intention of making a pep talk about writing to soldiers and sailors. I'll leave that to my emotional contemporaries. But as a fair country reporter, I think I've found out the second best way to tell your guy or gal whatever is on your mind. That way is through the use of V-mail. There are several reasons, but I think you can throw them all out the window after the first reason. And that is, anything you send by V-mail will get where it's sent. Planes crash, ships sink, but V-mail negatives stay right here. If one is lost, it is sent off again. Yes, somebody reads V-mail material before it goes overseas. But, and so many of us don't seem to realize this, somebody reads every letter before it is sent overseas. There's nothing anybody can do about censors. V-mail is the process of photographing letters and then sending the negatives over for developing and delivering. A roll of V-mail film weighs five ounces, and it is the equivalent of a 35-pound sack of normal mail. And there is no limit to the number of pages you send, so long as each is properly addressed. 40,000 letters go through these machines here at Fleet Post Office, New York, and they can very easily handle twice as many. And the Navy says if the demand increases, they'll just get more machines. Yes, the Army and Navy want you to use V-mail. They know better than anyone just what mail means to fighting men and women, and they are determined to see that mail gets to these men and women. 
But they'd like to use the space now used by mail sacks for other things. Things that will get your man or boy back home sooner. And, as I said, V-mail is good. But it's only the second best way to tell your guy or gal what's on your mind. I return you now to Admiral Radio. Now for the news on the home front and an interview with the acting commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Washington, Don Pryor reporting. There's been a lot of speculation here over the part this country might be willing to play in a Finnish-Russian peace. But so far, all of that is pure speculation. Tomorrow or the next day, President Roosevelt is expected to veto the new tax bill on the ground that it doesn't provide enough money. The subsidy fight in Congress seems to be over temporarily since the president vetoed the anti-subsidy bill last week. But the battle will begin again when the Price Control Act comes up for renewal. Now we have a story without any heroics about the job the Coast Guard has been doing to protect the great flood of war supplies going through American ports. But it's an important story because to a very critical degree, the whole course of victory depends upon the Coast Guard's success. To tell it, here is Rear Admiral Lloyd T. Chalker, acting commandant of the United States Coast Guard. The story is very simple. But the Coast Guard this week is an anniversary. Because it was just two years ago that the Secretary of the Navy, acting under an executive order by the President, gave us the responsibility for port security. And that means what? By the times of the President's order, it means safeguarding all of our waterfront facilities. In the United States, Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. It's our job to see that supplies and troops get through the ports with a minimum of laws from accidents and from sabotage and subversive activities of all kinds. Well, except for ordinary accidents, is the danger really very great? There hasn't been very much sabotage, has there? No, there has not. But not because the enemy is disinterested. From the military standpoint, our ports rank with major airfields as primary enemy targets. The reason is obvious. Except for bombers and certain small items that can be transported by air, every piece of war equipment that we send abroad has to be funneled through our ports. They are the smallest, most concentrated parts of the whole supply line, and therefore they are the most vulnerable parts. If the enemy could strike an effective blow there, it would be more valuable to him than most costly attacks on our enemy convoy at sea. In the last war, there were many waterfront disasters caused by enemy agents. The famous Black Tom explosion alone cost five lives, injured more than 100 people, and destroyed more than $25 million worth of property. In this war, there has been nothing like that. In fact, our losses in port this time have been almost unbelievably low, actually lower than in peacetime, in spite of the astronomical increase in shipments. For instance, fire insurance claims in one big eastern port during the year 1940-41 amounted to more than $5 million. During the same period in 1942 and 1943, they were $450. In other words, we've cut the losses way down while the volume of shipments has increased enormously. Well, that really is an impressive record, Admiral Chalker. How do you account for it? To tell the truth, it's better than we expected. For the re- but the reason for it is simple. When this thing began, we were determined that we were not going to repeat the mistakes that were made last time. Captain Norman B. Hall was put in charge of port security job and his orders were clear to make the port safe and keep them that way. We think he's done an excellent job, and so have the officers, enlisted men, and thousands of patriotic volunteers who have been working under him. 
and the many more local officials and private individuals who have given such splendid cooperation. Well, they can all be proud of a job well done. I return you to Admiral Radio in New York. In one of the frankest Axis acknowledgments of the failure of Japanese strategy, Berlin Radio said today that Tokyo had not expected an attack on Truk before a complete American occupation of the Marshall Islands. The broadcast recorded by CBS said the Japanese Navy will not come out to fight and that the Japanese press registers the fact in the usual polite manner that the Americans evidently have a lot of planes at their disposal for such erratic enterprises. Now, once again, here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. The Admiral Automatic Record Changer is the product of years of careful research and is a triumph of modern engineering skill. Because of its very simplicity and trouble-free mechanism, it is small wonder that Admiral attained leadership as the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonographs with automatic record changers. The Admiral changes records quickly, taking only six seconds as compared to some others taking twice as long. Admiral's counterbalanced tone arm is a vast improvement over other types. It exerts only one ounce of pressure. This results in better tone and longer life for your records. Your highly prized records are safe in an Admiral automatic changer, for there is far less chance of chipping or breaking them. It's a thrilling experience to load an Admiral automatic changer with 10 or 12 records, then just sit back and enjoy hearing them played flawlessly, one by one, without going near the instrument. When peace comes again and Admiral's wartime job is done, Admiral, America's smart set, in combination with the world's finest automatic record changer, will again be available. The appearance of personnel of the armed services on this program does not constitute an endorsement of our product. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by the Admiral Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave, direct from leading news centers of the world. This is Warren Sweeney speaking coast to coast for Admiral Radio, makers of our country's smartest set. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. WBBM, Chicago. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the World War II radio podcast. We hope these old-time radio programs entertain and help you learn more about what Americans experienced during the war 80 years ago. Be sure to visit brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts for past episodes and more information 